Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this morning to Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we're looking at Colossians chapter 4, and this morning we're focusing in on verses 5 and 6. But we'll begin our reading at verse 1, and in the church Bibles, Colossians 4 is found on page 985. Colossians 4 at verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We have, uh, in recent weeks, we have been looking at how uh, one of the themes that Paul has been uh, drumming away at is the idea that the gospel uh, shapes all of life. That when a person comes to believe in Jesus, that it is to shape the way that they live in every sphere uh, of their life. It shapes the way that they treat others in their relationships. You remember Paul emphasized that they were to put off uh, the vices of their former way of life, the malice, the anger, uh, and the like. But they were to put on the characteristics of Christ. They were to put on love. They were to put on forgiving one another uh, as God in Christ has forgiven them. They are to show forth the character of Christ in the way that they live now by the power of the Spirit. Paul also said that the gospel was to shape the way that they live in their day-to-day their -day living, in their households. And we looked at the relationship between uh, husband and wife and fathers and children and masters and servants. But then last time we were saying there's another sphere here that Paul is emphasizing. The gospel is really to shape the way that Christians live their lives in the world. And we looked at last time how that relationship uh, plays itself out in terms of how a Christian speaks to God that Christians are to pray to God about the world. They are to pray for the advancement of the gospel. Uh, they are to pray that others in the world would come to know that Jesus is Lord. And that's what Paul was exhorting them to in their prayers. He told them to pray that God would open a door for them uh, to declare the mystery of Christ. This morning we want to come back to Colossians and we want to think about the Christian's relationship with the world, not just in terms of how the Christian talks uh, 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 about the world to God, but about how the Christian is to talk about God to the world. And we want to think this, this morning about that relationship of the Christian living uh, before outsiders or those outside the faith. And we want to see that because uh, all the wisdom uh, uh, is found in Christ, that Christians are to live in such a way as to direct others to Christ. We want to think about verses 5 and 6 in two thoughts. We want to think about the wisdom of their way of life 
and secondly, the wisdom of their speech. The wisdom of their walk and the wisdom of their speech. Well, first, we want to think about how uh, Christians are to live wisely in terms of their way of life. And you see that in verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Wisdom is concerned with right living. It is concerned with living rightly uh, uh, in terms of overall uh, purposes. The book of Proverbs tells us that one of the benefits of living wisely is happiness. But Proverbs also stresses that true wisdom uh, involves recognizing and acknowledging God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Conversely, uh, foolishness then is not just making common sense mistakes, but foolishness, Proverbs teaches, is to live without reference to God. Foolishness is to ignore God from the equation as to how you are living your life. And so when scripture talks about wisdom, as it talks about living rightly, it's talking about living in a way that acknowledges God in all that you're doing. Because the creation itself testifies that there is a God. And so to live as though there was not a God would be the height of folly. But as Paul is talking to the church here in Colossians, uh, in Colossae, you remember that one of the themes that he's woven into his letter is the idea of wisdom. At the beginning of his letter, he talked about how he was praying that the church would be marked by wisdom. He was praying that the church would have all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. He was praying that they would be structuring their life around a knowledge of God. And so they cannot live wisely apart from a knowledge of God and of his purposes. But then Paul became even more narrow. You remember in chapter 2, he talked about wisdom again. But he didn't just talk about acknowledging God. And not just acknowledging God's purposes vaguely. But saying that the purposes of God center on Christ. That, that in Christ, all the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. That if we're going to live rightly, it means acknowledging God's purposes in Jesus. It's to understand everything in relation to Christ. And so Paul's concern for the church was is that they would live wisely. But what does that mean? That they would live with reference to Jesus in all of life. That they would acknowledge Jesus as their Redeemer, but as their Lord as well. And they would now live with a conscious reference to him in the way that they go about their life. So when we come to the uh, fourth chapter here and he tells the church to walk in wisdom, what he means by that is that he wants them to walk with a commitment in Christ, a conscious reference to Jesus in all things, that they might live rightly in a world that believes different things. As they interact with outsiders, with people who have very different beliefs, that Christians would nevertheless know where their anchor lies and that they would know where their compass is pointing them to. So when he says there, walk with wisdom towards outsiders, you notice that Paul does not envision the Christian community as living withdrawn from the world. He doesn't envision Christians as living entirely separate uh, from those of different faiths. Rather, he is telling them that they need wisdom 
in order to navigate and to live uh, with those who live uh, believe very different things. This is what Paul says uh, to the church in Ephesus. He says, look carefully on how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. What he means by that is to walk unwisely would be to walk carelessly. It would be to, to simply go forward adopting uh, uh, the customs of your environment without consciously thinking about how you should be living. Just as uh, in the wintertime when we walk on the sidewalk, we recognize that the terrain is such that we need to exercise great caution. Uh, the ice, uh, the, the unevenness of the ground, we could slip and fall. And so we can't just proceed without care. We have to be deliberate about how we are living because there are influences that would make us compromise uh, if we simply adapt and embrace everything that is happening in the world. So we can understand Paul's words here when he says to walk with wisdom as containing an element of caution in it. But it's not simply an element of caution, but rather it is, it is focusing on consideration. When he tells the church to walk with wisdom, he is doing so because of who they are and what they are called to. Remember that Paul describes Christians as those who have been uh, redeemed, those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's light. That as those who are the light of this world, they are those who are to reflect the light of Christ into a world that doesn't know him. And Paul is telling them to walk with wisdom in a world where they don't know Jesus Christ. And in order that they might be able to bear witness to him. There was a study that was done just over 10 years ago here in Canada by the Angus Reid Institute. That survey was done of about 4,500 Canadians. The purpose of the survey was to understand how Canadians do and do not connect with the Bible, why they do and why they don't. And in that survey of about 10 years ago, they found that one in 10 Canadians reads their Bible once a week. One in 10, 11% of Canadians read their Bible once a week. From that survey, they also noted that that number had gone down by half of what it had been just 20 years earlier. Now we could take those statistics and go in different directions from them, but one thing that that shows us is that even 10 years ago, only one in 10 Canadians read their Bible regularly. And what that means is, is that only one in 10 Canadians is saturating themselves in the teachings of God's word. But nine out of 10 Canadians is not as familiar with the teachings of God's word and are more dependent on what they witness in order to form their understanding of Christianity. If people aren't reading the Bible, then they're going to depend on what they see in the media, but also in what they observe in the lives of Christians to form their understanding of what they think Christianity is. And so when Paul says to the church here, walk with wisdom toward outsiders, Paul is saying that because people may not read their Bible, 
but they are reading Christians. And their view of Jesus is going to be influenced by the way that Christians live and what they see Christians are focused on and the way that they see Christians talk and live. And so all of this is stressing the importance of the Christian's life uh, because they become the focus for how many people form their understanding of Christianity. You notice that there is this positive aspect here uh, to Paul's concern as well because he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of time. When Paul talks about walk with wisdom, he's not just saying avoid sin uh, because that wouldn't explain why he's saying making the best use of time. Making the best use of time has the idea of a goal in mind which goes beyond simply avoiding sin. There's a positive concern, in other words, what Paul is saying. He's telling the church, you have to live in a way that is marked by God's will in order to accomplish God's purpose towards those who are outside the faith. And so he tells them to do so by making the best use of time. We hear this uh, similar expressions in our own uh, day, don't we? People will oftentimes, you have to seize the day. Uh, time, time keeps moving. You only live once. And so people understand that there's a, an importance associated with time. Uh, we have to make the most of things. But how does a person actually go about making the best use of time? One way that people answer that is by trying to maximize happiness. Just try to do as much as you can with a limited time that you have. And that must be the best use of your time. But if you stop and think about it, if, if we live our lives simply trying to maximize happiness, are we not ultimately just racing against time without ever actually stopping to think, what is time for? Are we not just in a panic over time rather than seeing the overarching purpose of time? And so when Paul tells the church here, make the best use of time, He's not just laying a weight on their shoulders where they feel a sense of angst. How do I know if I'm making the best use of my time? He's saying something that the church can answer affirmatively. Christianity teaches us how we can make the best use of time. And it's by living in light of eternity. We live now in light of God's overarching purposes. Rather than by putting all our weight in moment-by-moment -moment succession of events, we're able to appreciate the moments in light of the whole. Christians are able to approach the moments they're in, making the best use of those moments, because they understand how they connect and fit into the big story. That's what we're missing as a culture. We've lost a sense of what is the big story, what is the big purpose of time. So one person can hear, make the best use of the time that you have, and they can feel it like a sense of dread, like weight on their shoulders. How do I know that I haven't messed up the time that I have? If I only live once, how much crushing weight does that push on a person? A Christian is able to live in light of God's purposes and is able to serve uh, their God uh, with the time that they are given. They're living, in other words, with eternity in view. So Paul tells uh, the church, 
how they are to live their lives with respect to outsiders. They are to walk with wisdom. Uh, and uh, they are to do that recognizing not only that they need to have caution uh, because they will be interacting with different beliefs, but also because in his providence, God is using those interactions to cause others to come to hear and to know of Jesus themselves. But he becomes even more specific. Not only does he talk about the wisdom of their way of life, he says in verse 6 uh, something about the wisdom of their speech. He says there in verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let your speech be gracious. Um, or as some translations say, uh, always with grace. The point is, is that everything the Christian is to be saying is to have a grace intention with it. That they're always to be speaking in a way that is shaped uh, by the grace of God. A Christian is not to lose sight of that mandate. Uh, they are to direct others uh, to the grace of God. But notice that he says their speech is to be seasoned with salt. Now, you know, one of the purposes of salt is to act as a preservative. And that was a function of salt in the ancient world. It, you preserve your food with salt. But it's not the only use of salt. And one of the main uses of salt is to enhance something, uh, to make something more enjoyable. So on a cold winter day, if you go home and you have a bowl of soup this afternoon, and you pour some salt in it, you're enhancing the flavors. You're bringing out the flavors to enjoy it more. That's what Paul is getting at here when he says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. He's not telling the church to uh, say something that isn't true. He's telling them to bring out something of God's truth that otherwise may not be appreciated or that otherwise may not be tasted and seen. And so as Paul writes these words, he's really telling the church how they are to be intentional with respect to outsiders, that their appreciation of Christianity would be rightly formed. Some of you may know the name Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician. Uh, he was a philosopher. He was also someone who wanted to, to defend the Christian faith. And he started writing down notes, uh, what he called uh, pensées or thoughts, reflections. And his hope was ultimately to take all these notes and to write some uh, book explaining and defending the Christian faith. Uh, Pascal died before he ever got to doing that. But in one of those notes, uh, Pascal wrote a reflection and he wrote the following. He said, men despise religion, they hate it, and they're afraid that it may be true. The cure for this is to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish that it were true, and then show that it is. There's a psychology of atheism that Pascal was describing there. Men hate religion, and they're afraid that it could be true. And that's why they're looking at Christians, so that when they see hypocrisy, when they see disconnects between what they say and how they live, they're able to say, you see, it's not true. And then they're able to assure themselves 
that this, this, is, not, this is not true. And what Pascal is saying is, is that Christians, as they interact with those outside the faith, are not to be satisfied with simply just giving good arguments. Because it's not simply a matter of the mind. Because they don't want it to be true. And what Pascal was saying is, is that Christians should try to show that Christianity is something respectable. It's something good. Then he wants to show that it's something attractive. Wouldn't it be nice if this was true? Do you see how it brings everything together? Do you see how it makes sense of everything? And then Pascal says, then we want to show that it actually is true. And when a person has this desire or an inclination or an openness to saying, that would be nice if it were true, then the arguments for Christianity are all the more receptive. Now, Pascal, like anyone else, would say God can work sovereignly however he wants. That we don't have to box things in and make it all mechanical. But what Pascal was saying is, is that we shouldn't bypass the fact that people don't want to listen. And that there is something of the Christian's calling of making the gospel attractive. That the Christian is trying to season it so that they understand why it is attractive. So that they will listen themselves. And if you're sitting here as someone who hasn't made profession of faith, then begin with those questions. Not just do I think it's true or false. You could ask yourself, if Christianity was true, would you trust in Jesus? And that might be a searching question. But you can also ask the question, do I have any respect for Christianity? And that shows the, your own intention with respect to, to the faith as well. So here, uh, uh, what Pascal is arguing is very much similar to what Paul is saying about having our speech seasoned with salt, that we are to speak about Christ in a way that is desirable and attractive. So there's a character to our speech. Uh, it is full of grace, but it is seasoned in a way that is attractive uh, and, in, and enjoyable to the taste to others. But notice as well, he says not just something about the character of our speech, uh, but also something about the confidence of our speech as well. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. They know what they believe, but they also know why. Uh, Paul assumes uh, that those who are standing firm in their faith will be able to explain their faith. They will be able to testify it to others. But notice as well that it's interesting, Paul uses the perfect tense here. He actually says uh, that you have known how it is necessary to respond to each one. If you are a Christian living in the first century, you are going to be faced with the pressures of outsiders who don't think that you are worthy of respect. If you were a Christian in the first century, you were thought of as unpatriotic. Why? Because you wouldn't burn incense to Caesar. In the first century, you were thought of as an atheist if you were a Christian. Why? Because you didn't worship the visible gods of Rome. In the first century, you were thought of as immoral because you met behind closed doors. You were accused of being a cannibalist 
because of the Eucharist, celebration of the bread and wine of the Lord Jesus. There were all kinds of misrepresentations about what it meant to be a, a follower of Jesus. But the church in Colossae, like any other Christian in the first century, had to know how to answer the outsiders in order to explain their faith. They had to know how to do so. And it was not by compromising. It was not by offering incense to Caesar. It was not by paying tribute to the visible Roman gods, but by being committed to God's will and doing so in a way that showed a better way. The Christian is able to live in a world with those who are living for another God and to show a better way as they are able to testify to the truth of the Lord Jesus. Just as Christians in the first century were accused of many things, so Christians today will be labeled with all sorts of misrepresentations. If you're a Christian, you may be accused of hating gay people. If you're a Christian, you may be accused of being against women's rights. If you're a Christian, you may be accused of being uh, ignorant, uh, as someone who's backwards, as someone who is intolerant. There will be many accusations that come against Christians. But a Christian needs to know how to speak to a world in darkness with speech that is seasoned with salt and is able to not compromise, but to still show how the gospel is more attractive than living without Christ. That is the Christian's calling. That is what God has called them to do in their time and in their place. And so here we're seeing something of the confidence that is to mark the Christian life. How? How are Christians to know how to respond to all the accusations, to all the slanderous things that come against them? The scriptures teach that believers are to be shaped by the reality of the truth of God's word. There is no strategic formula. There is no magic bullet. But as Christians live with integrity, they will be able to garner respect. As Christians focus on the glory of God, their words will become grace words. As Christians delight in God's gospel, their words will become something attractive in God's providence. And so there will be clashes of beliefs but Christians are to minister in that in a way that is gracious, standing for truth and seeking to love their neighbor, those who are outside the faith. That calls for wisdom. If Christians are not clear in terms of their intentions, they can descend into an angry attitude of hostility towards outsiders or negligence in terms of shining as lights in this world. Christians are not aimed at winning the argument or at avoiding all controversy. They will want to show the message of Jesus is attractive and ultimately better than the wisdom of this world. That's what Paul says, isn't it, in 2 Corinthians. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God is at work in this world and he is causing the light of the gospel to shine so that those who are in darkness come to delight in Jesus Christ. They not only see that Christianity is respectable, they see it as attractive. 
And more than that, they see it as true. That's a work of God's spirit. Christians can't bring someone to faith in that sense. But God is working through our feeble conversations. He's working through our feeble witnesses because the wisdom of God is more powerful than the wisdom of this world. And God uses the foolishness of weak, feeble believers in their testimony, in their speech, in their life to awaken others to God's truth. The gospel is to shape all of life. It is to inform the way that we live. It is to shape our relationships one with another. It is to shape our homes. It's also to shape the way that we relate to those outside the faith. And the way that we relate to those who are outside the faith is with grace and with confidence. We have something that the world needs. And we are to be people like one beggar giving another beggar bread. We are to do so with humility, but confident in God's work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about uh, your word, we pray, Lord, that we would see how it is to shape us. We confess, Lord, that we can uh, easily uh, uh, be characterized by uh, a selfish uh, self-interest uh, when we become angry and hostile or when we become passive and withdrawn from others. And we pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come, that you would continue to work in our world, uh, even as you have worked in the past. We pray, Lord, that many who have lived even in rebellion to your truth uh, would come to delight in the Lord Jesus themselves. And may we be people who, just as when Paul uh, was converted, and may we be people who are ultimately able to receive and to rejoice in the transformation of your grace. Go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.